0: John chapter 2, this morning, the first 12 verses. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Some of us in this room, maybe 50%, will remember, as in we were alive for, the 1991 movie City Slickers. And if you remember that movie, you remember the scene. Mitch, the New York businessman in a midlife crisis, and Curly, the genuine cowboy, are riding side by side. And Curly says, Do you know what the secret to life is? Mitch, in the midst of a crisis in his own life, does not know. And the answer, Curly says, is this the one thing. You stick to that, he says, and nothing else matters. What can deal with Mitch's anxiety? What can give his life renewed purpose and meaning? Whatever it is, it's one thing. John's narrative of Jesus' public ministry will occupy the next 11 chapters of the gospel from here through the end of chapter 12. Because of what John says in verse 11, these chapters are often called the book of signs. And this, this morning's text, will be the first of many of Jesus' miraculous works. Signs is the term John prefers for miracles because he likes to emphasize how the miracles that Jesus performs always point to something beyond the miracle. What they point to is no mystery, of course. John told us from the beginning The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The miracles are signs of Jesus's glory. They are signs, therefore, of the Father's glory. Signs that Jesus and the Father are one. That's why, the way John sees it, signs beget and reinforce faith in Christ. We marvel at this morning's story and what happened at the wedding feast in Cana. This, the first of those signs made publicly, but never forget how it ends. And his disciples believed in him. From this morning's passage through chapter 4, Jesus' ministry will focus in and around Cana. His works and his teaching in this part of the Gospels focus on the newness of his covenant compared with the old. Paul will later write to the Corinthians that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In this sign, we have illustrated the new wine of his kingdom. Next will come word of a new and better temple. And then the new birth, and then living water, water from a well, new water that will fulfill thirst forever. And then finally, new and better worship, not like the old ways, but in spirit and in truth. And so it's fitting that such a section of teaching on newness would begin with a wedding. John's prologue already had us thinking about creation week and about Jesus as the focus of God's new creation. And wedding imagery is here. Jesus' church is his bride. His consummation is described as a wedding feast. All of the earthly themes in this morning's events paint a picture, at least In shadow form of significant heavenly realities, this event becomes and is treated by Jesus as a kind of living parable. In some ways, though, the situation is quite mundane. Jesus, his mother, and his current roster of disciples are invited to a wedding. That Jesus and the disciples would be invited suggests the bride or groom is a family friend or a relative, and perhaps even that Mary was involved in the logistics of the event. We don't know that for sure, but it's certainly possible, and it would further explain her concern with the potentially embarrassing situation at hand. A few years ago, in my previous job, my company sent me to India to open a new office there. My host was a great Christian young man we'd hired the year before, Myron. And Myron had recently gotten engaged. And when I asked him about the wedding date, he wasn't quite sure. Not because he or the bride were having cold feet, not because he was a procrastinator. He wasn't sure because of how much money he had to save up in order to get married. In his culture, the groom was expected to throw and pay for an elaborate week-long wedding party. Everyone that you invited to the wedding was also invited to this party. And their accommodations, their food, and their drinks, Myron was expected to provide it all. That was the custom in the time of this story as well. All the expenses for a week-long wedding celebration belonged to the groom. The places to stay, the food to eat, the wine to drink, all of it was his responsibility. And there was a lot of shame attached to being unable to provide for your guests, of running out of anything. After all, if you can't provide for a week-long party of your bride's family and dozens of their closest friends, how ready to be a groom are you? The German word friend shaman refers to the embarrassment you share with someone who is embarrassing themselves. So whether Mary was simply feeling this or had herself dropped the ball, we'll never know. But she wants this potentially embarrassing problem solved quickly. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. It's important here to understand her expectations, that is, why she is asking Jesus about this at all. We know the story of what happens. We know the gospel stories of Jesus' many miracles, and so, of course, we think that Jesus is capable of performing a miracle here. But remember, he hasn't performed any public miracles yet. There is no reason to think that that's what Mary has in mind when she brings this problem to him. What she's likely doing is just counting on Jesus the way she has for most everything else day to day. From the gospel accounts, it seems that she was widowed by this point, probably from the time Jesus was about 12 And so for many years, Mary has relied on Jesus' help for provision and no doubt for all kinds of situations that have come up. So when she makes her request, this isn't a follower of Jesus coming to him for some miraculous answer to an impossible situation. This is a widowed mom coming to the son she counts on most for help with her problems and telling him to fix it. And that is is how to understand Jesus' peculiar response. And he said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now a response like this is tough to translate, not only across languages, but across cultures. Jesus is not rude. He is abrupt. He is firm. The term that he uses, translated woman, is respectful. Respectful but it's not normally a term you'd use for your mother. Here in the South, ma'am gets the level of respectfulness right, but in the South, children do call their moms ma'am, and that's not how this term that Jesus used is applied. To get the tone right, maybe we need to go back to our movie illustration. We need to picture someone like Curly, who's asked by the hotel proprietor to intervene in somebody else's poker dispute. Ma'am, Jesus says, This isn't our business. Why Jesus would say such a thing is revealed by what he says after that. My hour has not yet come. This tells us what Jesus' answer is about. It tells us what Jesus is thinking. It tells us about Jesus' one thing. The one thing that will define and identify his purpose in life. He hints at it here. He will say it explicitly on other occasions. And leading up to it several times in John, he'll say, as he does here, that his hour has not yet come. He's looking at something different from what Mary is looking at. There will come a point. That point is actually, as we'll see, The message of Gentiles being included in the kingdom, Gentiles being grafted on by faith to his kingdom. That's the hour that will arrive, but the hour is about salvation. The hour is the will and the plan of his father whom Jesus always obeys. John 5.30, Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own as I hear I judge and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 8.28, he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Here in this brief exchange with his mother, the beginning of his public ministry, it's as though the switch flips on Jesus's life and he becomes singularly focused on the one thing. Prior to this, he was Mary's son. He worked as a carpenter. He was available to her needs and to her agenda. But here his public ministry begins and that's going to change things. One pastor explains that Jesus declares at this, the beginning of his ministry, his utter freedom from any kind of human advice, agenda, or manipulation. From Jesus's point of view, from this point on, his life will be cross focused because that is his father's will for him. His life will be fixed on that one thing. He embarks on the. On his ministry and the ministry of his father. And so his only lodestar is his heavenly father's will. Now think about Mary's question. In that moment, Mary wants to make Jesus's life about her will. Helping this groom avoid embarrassment. And that's not an altogether unworthy motive. But it's not Jesus's one thing. His response, which seems to come out of left field... Indicates that he's already thinking about a future wedding. He's thinking about his union with his church. He's thinking about a future feast with great wine. That's his hour. That's when he will provide all that is needed. He'll not just be a guest. He'll be the bridegroom. And this event is not about that. This wedding is about some other guy. Some other bride. Mary just wants more wine. She wants the embarrassment to go away. And if Jesus simply provides it, he will show her a miracle. But if he puts it in its proper context first, then he will show Mary something more than a miracle. He will show her a sign. Now, to her credit, Mary seems to understand this immediately. Can you imagine how difficult That must have been for her. The man that she raised. The little boy that she birthed and nursed. Become the young man that she had grown to rely upon entirely. And though respectful, he's now putting some distance between them. Mary is experiencing her own form of what uh, mothers experience in leaving and cleaving as their children get married. Mom has to let go when her child is given or taken in marriage. And for Christ, his bride is the church. How painful it must have been for her beloved son to create even this little bit of distance between the goals and the desires of their lives. Her initial approach to Jesus in this situation is as a mother to a son it's based on the assumption that she has some special access to him because after all, she's his mother. And that's why it didn't work. But after Jesus' response, she seems to understand that there is no inside track for her. And so by faith, she adjusts her perspective. Remember when Peter had to do the same. Jesus dealing with, Peter, and not his own mother, was a bit harsher in that context. Jesus began to teach that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Jesus is pronouncing his Father's will for his life. And Peter took him aside And began to rebuke him. No, Jesus, let me tell you my wonderful plan for your life. Let me tell you what I want things to be for you. And turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Thankfully, Jesus did not say that to his mother. (laughs) Children, at some point, you'll have to adjust your perspective just the same way. You're growing up in Christian homes with Christian parents. They bring you to church every week. You hear the word of God preached. Hopefully, you're participating in worship. That's all really good. It's honoring to God, and it's good for you. But sometimes children who grow up this way can take God's blessing for granted, They'll think that because their parents have genuine faith, maybe they don't have to. They'll think that because they spent their childhood in church, a few years of living for self is something that God will understand. They think that they have an inside track with God because of who they are. And so they can live how they want and not how God wants. But what Peter learned. What Mary, Jesus' own mom, had to learn is that there is no inside track with God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us have that distance between ourselves and who God will make us to be. And though the church, this community of Christians that you're a part of, is the place where you'll encounter that Savior, you have to receive and honor him as your Savior, not just your parents'. Everyone who follows God has to seek to love him with their heart and their mind and their soul and their strength. Mary's perspective changes. Her response becomes one of faith. Faith is usually expressed in very simple terms. And she turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. Gentle as his correction was, she receives it and moves forward in faith and trust. Whatever needs to happen here, Jesus can be trusted to do it or not to. That is so hard, isn't it? We want details. If someone won't tell us how they're going to do it, We at least want to know what the outcome's going to be, what they're trying to accomplish. Jesus gives Mary nothing to work with. She can either trust him or not. That's how Curly's one thing works, too. It's how the Christian life works. We want to know Everything that's going to happen next. We want the details. We want to have confidence in the what and in the how. But in Christianity, the only thing that we can actually have confidence in is the who. God is the who, the sovereign God. And if our one thing in life is trusting him, all those anxieties can be put in their proper place. We could turn with the confidence of Mary and say, Do whatever he tells you. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what the outcome's going to be, but I know he is entirely trustworthy. That's certainly Jesus' one thing, isn't it? He trusts his Father. That's why his life can be set on doing his Father's will, even when that will is unknown. There will be times where Jesus says, I don't know what's coming. He sets aside his omniscience to take on human flesh in certain ways. And there are th- this is why Jesus can set his life on doing his father's will, even when he knows what's coming, and it's terrible. It's hard. But he trusts him. I am no professional psychologist But I will tell you this with confidence. I will diagnose your issue here. When we fail to do God's will, every one of us, when we fail to do God's will, it is always because we don't trust him. We don't trust that his way will be safe or that his way will provide enough. Or that his way will lead to joy. Or that his way will give us acceptance of those around us. We don't trust. But Jesus, he gets the one thing that takes care of everything else. He trusts his father's will. And Mary does likewise here with Jesus. He trusts, she trusts him. And she says, do whatever you he tells you. And what she gets in response to her faith is both exactly what she wanted and more than she ever could have expected. Jesus doesn't lecture, he doesn't spoil the party, he doesn't even embarrass the host in the most discreet miracle ever. This is the first miracle of his public ministry, but almost nobody saw it. He just produces wine, lots and lots of wine, maybe 150 gallons of it. And according to the master of the feast, very good wine. Now, by simply being present at the feast, affirming it by his participation, Jesus has proven he's no pietist. But here, producing such a volume of wine, he causes the monastics and ascetics' heads to explode We're allowed some fun in the Christian life, but not 150 gallons of fun, you guys. But wine, as scripture says, makes the heart glad. Wine is a sign of the new creation, it's evidence of God's grace, which, like wine, is poured out in abundance. Jesus says that the Son of Man came eating and drinking. It's what makes him distinct from his forerunner, John the Baptist. And here, he even is the one who produces the drink. And this should come as no surprise to any of us. Because set aside your perspective on wine for a moment. And see the bigger picture. Jesus knows that the result of doing his father's will is joy. He knows that joy in life comes through trusting his father and doing his father's will, not just for himself, but for those who are with him. His one thing, his single-minded focus on doing the father's will frees him up to live a joy-filled and secure life. And if we trust him, that's what we're able to do as well, to live joy-filled and secure lives. Another Christian a century ago said, fear God and you'll have nothing else to fear. I say, worry about trusting God and you'll have nothing else to worry about. Now, John says that these signs, including this one, were given to point to Jesus's glory And to promote faith. While the cross is the great sign of Jesus's life. These lowercase s signs have value and something important to say as well. Verse 11, this the first of his signs Jesus did and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is something far less than the cross. And yet it has God-honoring value. It reveals the glory of God so that the faith of his people can be cultivated and strengthened. So what about your life? Is your life not also filled with lowercase s signs from Jesus? Testaments to his glory intended to strengthen Your faith? Are your eyes open every day to seeing them? To seeing his glory in them? And to having your faith strengthened by them? Moms, that growth by grace. Oh, so slowly, but surely, that you're seeing in the stubborn child. That's the work of God in them. It's the miracle of God's spirit that reveals his glory. Husband, your wife's increasing quickness to forgive. It's the glory of God at work in her. It's at work in worship. The sermon where the application or the encouragement is just what you needed to hear. The hymn with the unfamiliar verse that yet speaks to your soul. The brief moment of heartfelt fellowship with the sister in Christ. The acceptance and the unity in the body that you experience. These things aren't natural. They are supernatural miracles. They are the work of God that reveal his glory. And every one of them can make your faith stronger if you'll see it. Now, of course, in the church, we have the privilege of also enjoying two capital S signs. And when we see them, we're always meant to see the deeper things signified by them. We have a baptismal font, and when we baptize We see God give a sign, which is the seal of his promise. This person is mine. They belong to my church. They belong to the bride of my son. She will be blessed. And if she takes hold of my son by faith, she will be saved. What a glorious sign! We have a table. The Lord's table, we celebrate the Lord's Supper, a capital S sign, which is the seal of his grace. That's why this sign, unlike baptism, can only be received by faith. Anyone can take wine and bread. Anyone can look sorrowful for sin. Remember the death of Jesus and eat and drink these elements. But only faith can see what lays beyond them. Jesus' ministry was filled with signs, signs that pointed to his glory. But as I read this week, the glory was not visible to all who saw the miracle. The servants saw the sign, but not the glory. The disciples and Mary, by faith, perceived Jesus' glory behind the sign, and they put their faith in him. Christian, look around you. You've been given faith. You have the eyes to see. So what are you seeing? Start with the sacraments, the capital S signs, for they are certain and true. But also this week, look around at the other miracles of God's grace, the miracles he's working in this church and all throughout your lives And see his glory in them. Let that grow your confidence and trust in him. Let them point you to the one thing. For us, a life lived joyfully for the glory of God. Focus on that. And everything else takes care of itself.